Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. My name is Chris Kirkbride and I'm the host of the Financial Crime Weekly. This week's roundup of all things financial crime looks at the Financial Conduct Authority's business plan for 22-23 and what it says about combating financial crime, the formation of the new Serious Economic Organised Crime and International Directorate, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners report Occupational Fraud 2022. But before that, where else can we start but with sanctions, sanctions, sanctions at the forefront of political consciousness globally following Russia's invasion of Ukraine? This week, as you might expect, global sanctions continue to dominate the news in financial crime following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It might have been thought that we'd reached the end of the road on this, but not so. There's an incremental increase in the sanctions of individuals connected with Putin's regime across the UK, US and EU regimes, together with licenses to allow certain typical functions of international finance to continue. First of all, the UK government, through the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has updated its guidance on the UK sanctions regime. The updated guidance provides further information on financial and investment restrictions and, where needed, restrictions on investments in non-government-controlled Ukrainian territory, together with an updated list of specific firms under financial and investment restrictions. The complete guidance is available on the OFSI website. Additionally, the UK government has also placed restrictions on imports to the UK of goods from those areas of Ukraine presently controlled by Russian invading forces. While the restrictive effect of sanctions is widely known, it is less well known that sanctions regimes offer licenses so that certain functions are able to continue. To this end, the UK government has issued licenses, thereby exempting from sanctions certain financial services relating to the receipt and onward transfer of non-ruble-denominated interest or principal payments relating to Russian sovereign debt issued by certain entities. Those entities are the Central Bank of the Russian Federation, the National Wealth Fund of the Russian Federation and the Ministry of Finance of the Russian Federation. The licenses expire on the 30th of June 2022. Across the Atlantic, the US Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC as it's known, has targeted the Russian technology sector in order to prevent sanctions evasion. To this end, it has designated 21 entities and 31 individ uh, sorry, 13 individuals seen as instrumental to the Russian Federation's war machine. Full details, including what has to be said to be an impressive infographic, can be found on the US Treasury Department website, together with an updated list of individuals and corporations subject to sanctions. War Crimes Earlier this week, either because of the incompetence of the initial invasion strategy or out of a genuine regrouping, forces of the Russian Federation began to withdraw from northern Ukraine. As well as the obvious devastation, disturbing news of atrocities, which may be war crimes, started to be reported in the towns of Borodyanka and Busha, or Buka. As these claims come further to light, while there will be an imperative to collect evidence to build cases against the perpetrators, there were early calls for further sanctions from the international community. These calls were met in coordinated fashion by the US administration, the EU and G7 group of leading industrialised nations. The updated response placed a range of new sanctions and restrictions on Putin's adult children. The UK banned inward and outward investment in Russia, together with an asset freeze on the Credit Bank of Moscow, one of Russia's largest banks. 
In relation to the Credit Bank of Moscow, Ofsi has issued a license allowing the winding down of transactions involving the bank. On that theme, certain Russian banks are beginning to wind up their UK operations. On the ground, the sanctions continue to have an impact on the operation of businesses inside and outside the Russian Federation, and any number of news outlets can give you stories on that. But closer to home, if your home is the United Kingdom, the sanctions are being felt by Russian banks operating in the City of London. Spurbank, CIB, the Moscow-based Asset Management and Investment Bank, following court order, has entered the special administration process under statutory instrument made on the under the Banking Act 2009, the Financial Conduct Authority has announced. Three administrators have been appointed from Tenio Financial Advisory Limited, and an orderly winding down of its operations has started. This comes as the bank found post-sanctions operations impossible following a flight of counterparties, together with the loss of its UK CEO last week, which has been uh, documented in various uh, press outlets over the course of the week. As I write this and read it for publication, news reaches of a similar situation with VTB Capital, the UK-based investment unit of the Russian JSC VTB Bank. It has applied to have the same company of administrators appointed, that is, Tenio Financial Advisory, as the impact of sanctions makes its position equally untenable. For an in-depth analysis of the application and the interplay between the orderly liquidation of a financial firm and international sanctions, it's well worth reading the court report of the proceedings in relation to the case. I can only imagine that there will be more of these to follow over the coming weeks. Last tango in Palmer. In more tangible news of the impact of sanctions and the expensive toys that are being taken away from Russian oligarchs, the superyacht, believed to belong to Viktor Vexelberg, chairman of Renova, the Russian metals, energy and telecoms conglomerate, was seized by authorities in Palma de Mallorca in Spain's Balearic Islands. They were executing a US warrant. The superyacht, Tango, believed to be worth over 100 million euros, won't be sailing anywhere just yet. Moving away from sanctions for a bit, let's look at the serious economic organised crime and international directorate. The Crown Prosecution Service, the state prosecuting agency in England and Wales, has announced a new team designed to respond to the changing nature of serious economic and organised crime. The Serious Economic Organised Crime and International Directorate, or CIOCID, which has to be one of the worst acronyms ever, brings together expertise across fraud, money laundering, confiscation proceedings and pan-national enforcement to deal with this evolving threat. As Gregor McGill, the Director of Legal Services, said, the lines between organised criminality, fraud, money laundering and international crime are becoming increasingly blurred in our digital first society. Nice little soundbite though that may be, these blurred lines would seem to require a coordinated response with inputs across the expertise held by the agency. The creation of CIOCID marks a further stage in the implementation of the CPS's Economic Crime Strategy 2025. The 2025 strategy, published in spring 2021, sets out where the agency wants to be by 2025. With that date looming a little larger now, 
we can look forward to more announcements over coming months. We now turn attention to focus on the Financial Conduct Authority's business plan for 2022-2023. The Financial Conduct Authority has published its 2022-2023 business plan. As ever, it provides the stated aim of reducing and preventing financial crime because of the incalculable damage it causes to society. It has set down outcomes to be achieved over that timescale, namely slowing the growth in investment fraud and authorised push payment APP fraud, together with a reduction in financial crime, generally by lowering the incidence of money laundering through supervised firms. These outcomes will be achieved, so it says, first by a reduction in fraud opportunities at the authorization stage. If you don't have the FCA's badge of approval from the outset, consumers may not have the confidence to deal with a firm or individual. Secondly, by ensuring that authorised firms only approve financial pro promotions when they have the relevant competence on boarded. Thirdly, by continuing education to ensure that consumers can spot frauds and scams. This means the continuation of the Scam Smart scheme and the warning list so consumers are able to identify that they might be engaging with scammers. Fourthly, the FCA will continue its close monitoring of regulated firms' fraud systems and controls, undertaking periodic assessments of regulated firms. It also commits to the provision of further resources in relation to intelligence gathering and improved analytics to identify fraud activity or fraudulent activity. In this context, the Financial Conduct Authority recognises the acute importance of strategic partnerships with such as the National Economic Crime Centre, together with proactive supervision through the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervision, or OPBAS. Finally, the FCA commits to taking quick and effective action in disrupting fraudulent activity with takedowns of websites and associated fraudulent platforms, as well as making full use of enforcement powers in tackling fraudsters and their enablers. While the FCA makes all the right noises in relation to the continued fight against financial crime and particularly fraud, it is a continued fight because it is an evolving one. Nothing is more certain than that wherever opportunity presents, the fraudsters, increasingly organised and sophisticated, will look to exploit it. Indeed, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic is a clear reminder of the willingness of fraudsters to exploit any opportunity for gain. While we can only hope that the FCA's outcomes are achieved, it's more than a little easy to retain a healthy level of scepticism given how proactive fraudsters, balancing risk and reward, have demonstrated themselves to be. We now turn to look at EU crypto no-no. Uh, this week, crypto is back under the European Union's spotlight. MEPs on the Committee on Economic and Monetary Affairs, or ECON, and the Committee on Civil Liberties agreed to strengthen rules relating to the anti-money laundering regime and counter-terrorism financing. This forms part of an overall renewal of the EU's legislative framework, which is aimed at creating an over-inclusive uh, over approach with the aim that crypto assets can be traced as any other money transfer. Crypto poses particular problems for policymakers because of their operative features of decentralised and disintermediated transactions, sitting in contrast to a state's broad desire to oversee financial trans transactions either from a risk management perspective or for revenue generation. 
Thus, the concern must be to strike a balance in maintaining the benefits of crypto features while at the same time protecting consumers from exploitation by those concerned to use the benefits for criminal activity. The proposal has it that all crypto asset transfers should include information on the source of the asset and its beneficiary, with such information being passed to the competent authority. Such a structure would ensure transactions are identifiable and, where appropriate, blocked. Additionally, the MEPs indicated that the European Banking Authority should create and maintain a public register of entities concerned in crypto assets which may have a high risk of money laundering, terrorist financing and other criminality. A further aspect of the change reflects the indicated over-inclusive nature of the proposal, and that is to remove any form of threshold transaction value from the legislation. This goes further than the Financial Action Task Force's recommendations in their second 12-month review of the revised FATF standards on virtual assets and virtual asset service providers, which was published in 2021. Uh, that imposes customer due diligence requirements on transactions above a $1,000 threshold. That said, the FATF standards review does indicate that some, that some jurisdictions had, like the EU, chosen not to set a threshold standard and, instead, require all crypto asset transactions to satisfy some form of customer due diligence, something which has not been welcomed in the industry press. For more information on how crypto assets can be used by criminals, you can take a look at the FATF website and the European Parliament press release, which is available. Sticking with the EU, the European Economic Social and Social Committee EESC, has issued an opinion for the proposal for a regulation of the European Parliament and of the Council on the Prevention of the Use of the Financial System for the Purposes of Money Laundering or Terrorist Financing, a regulation of the European Parliament and of the Council on Information Accompanying Transfer of Funds and Certain Crypto Assets, and a directive on the of the European Parliament and of the Council on the mechanisms to be put in place by the Member States for the prevention of the use of the financial system for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing and repealing Directive EU 2015-849. Set against the context of the levels of money laundering in the European Union and, frankly, everywhere else, much of what the opinion provides will raise few eyebrows. However, it provides a comprehensive perspective on the direction of travel for the European Union in terms of its legislative and policy framework over the next three to five years. The EESC strongly supports the EU's anti-money laundering regime, particularly the creation of the European Anti-Money Laundering Authority, which should be operational by 2026, though the, commission, the committee rather, expresses the view that they'd like it to be earlier. And it supports also the regulations and directives concerned in the harmonisation of money laundering rules. Further, within AMLA, or the European Commission, a civic society advisory body should be created to combat behaviour which damages ethical and political principles within democratic societies. The committee also proposes that the regulation on crypto assets, discussed earlier, should be implemented as a matter of urgency, although it notes that more work might be needed to defend against the financial and criminal risks presented by such assets. Against the backdrop of financial crime risks posed by new assets, the committee also warns against the use of more traditional asset forms and markets being exploited for purposes of money laundering. In particular, 
uh, it particularly highlights rather the use of works of art and other high-value assets, the use of free ports, customs warehouses and special economic zones together with some real estate investments and gambling activity. Indeed, such is the broadening of the threat, the European legislation, uh, new European legislation will be needed in these areas. In order to support the fight against money laundering, the committee also recommends uh, that Europol be given a more extensive range of powers and further resources with greater coordination of natural pl national police forces in these areas. Allied to this is the need to ensure that the Commission pushes for the urgent transposition in all member states of Directive 2018-1673 of the European Parliament and of the Council, which establishes a common definition of the offence of money laundering and for a new directive on a common definition of related offences to be enacted in which the corresponding penalties for these offences should fall within certain ranges. And finally, what seems to be a very lengthy discussion, the committee warns of the continued use of shell companies within the EU and the role which they play in money laundering and tax avoidance, together with a need to draw up what it describes as a realistic and truthful list of high-risk third countries which may be facilitating money laundering. Indeed, the Commission is urged to enact rules excluding individuals and corporations involved in all aspects of financial crime not just money laundering, from public procurement exercises. Whew. Right, now, after that uh, sortie into the European Union, let's bring it back home and look at SARS in action. Operating under the auspices of the National Crime Agency in the UK, the United Kingdom Financial Intelligence Unit, the UK FUI, which is the body responsible for receiving and analysing suspicious activity reports submitted in the United Kingdom, has published the 15th edition of its SARS in Action magazine. Of particular interest in this edition, especially given that what is happening in Ukraine is an explanation of the new multidisciplinary kleptocracy cell, which was announced by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons on the 24th of February 2022. The kleptocracy cell will investigate criminal sanctions evasion and high-end money laundering, seeking to achieve the outcomes of targeting corrupt elites as well as their enablers through their assets and to foster cross-government sanctions delivery and enforcement. The cell appears to want to render the UK a no-go area for its enemies, which is probably about time. Finally this week, the Law Society has updated its anti-money laundering guidance for its members who need to comply with the Trust Registration Service, the TRS. Established in 2017, the TRS is a beneficial ownership register of trusts, which requires trustees, that is, those who manage the property under a trust on behalf of others, to register the beneficial ownership in the TRS where there is liability to income tax, capital gains, inheritance tax and certain other taxes. I'm not going to go through the full list. The updated guidance can be found on the Law Society website. And finally today, we look at the recently published Occupational Fraud Report. Uh, big news this week uh, in relation to fraud with the release of the Occupational Fraud 2022, a report to the nations by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, the ACFE. The report, the first to consider the extent of occupational fraud against the backdrop of the pandemic, makes compelling reading for anyone working in anti-fraud practice or general financial compliance. 
Published every two years since 96, and now in its 12th edition, the report provides an invaluable addition to the fraud landscape. Occupational fraud, sometimes known as internal fraud, is nothing new. It is fraud committed within an organisation, either against the organisation itself or against the customers of the organisation. There's nothing within the typologies which indicates that it is committed by one particular type of employee, rather that opportunities exist for such fraud to be committed by any employee at any level of the organisation. Ensuring a robust compliance process designed to create a culture such that employees do not commit such fraud, together with equally robust practices to see that employees are promptly and sufficiently punished where it does occur, is central to the ethos of all organisations, whatever sector of the economy they might operate in. So, what is worth flagging in this report? Well, to be frank with you, it's more a case of what's not worth flagging. It's so content-rich, it's really not possible to go through the full range of the report. There's so much in its 96 pages of, frankly, very engaging infographics that it's certainly worth spending a wet Sunday afternoon in a comfortable armchair with a cup of tea getting to grips with it. However, if you don't have time for that, here are some of the key takeaways. Let's start with the pandemic, which you may have noticed over the last couple of years. The pandemic created a shift in working patterns unseen in generations, as McDermott and Hansen have identified not only was there a widely reported shift to remote working, but also a creep in the number of hours people worked, including occasional weekend work. Additionally, there was staff and work reallocation, certainly in the early days of the pandemic, as firms looked to meet the new working landscape. These changes presented opportunities for occupational fraud, with 38% of respondents identifying the shift to remote working as being a factor, while 42% identified organisation staff changes as being a contributing factor. This recognition of different working patterns giving rise to an increase in the threat posed to corporations by occupation fraud has, to some degree, perhaps been part of the push to return staff to the office where a better eye can perhaps be kept on them. In terms of what we can do to respond to occupational fraud, the report is interesting in its analysis of the direction or sorry, the detection of occupational fraud within an organisation. While internal audit and management review still represent significant mechanisms for identifying occupation fraud, by far the most common method of detection, accounting for some 42% of cases, is the good old-fashioned tip-off. Of those fraud cases detected by tip-off, 55% of those came from employees, while in a nowhere near second place came customer tip-offs with only 18% of reports. The report notes that comprehensive training increased the likelihood of detection by tip-off so that over-inclusive compliance training can really have an effect. In terms of mechanisms for providing tip-offs, a tip-off hotline seems to be particularly effective. Worryingly for those organisations without a tip-off hotline, detection has to come from, out, from an outside source, that being either an external audit or accident, sheer fluke. So the message is strong. If organisations want to detect fraud, a grass a fraudster hotline can be incredibly effective. The report also examines trends in occupational fraud since 2012, so over the last decade. The report identifies that while men are perpetrating an increasing percentages of fraud over women, 
some 65% in 2012 compared to 73% in 2022, the median losses caused by women over men has narrowed, meaning women are accounting for an increasing amount of losses. Further, the report identifies an increasing trend in fraud committed by those higher up in the organisation, that is, manager and owner level. This has increased by 6% since 2012 to 62%. However, for me, the most interesting trend has been in the fall in pursuing criminal prosecution against those committing fraud in favour of organize, uh, the organisation taking civil action against the fraudster. The number of prosecutions fell over the decade from 65% to 58%, whereas civil action rose from 23% in 2012 to 29% in 2022. The drop in criminal prosecution in preference for civil action is interesting. The report offers reasons for organisations not referring cases to law enforcement agencies, top among which is there being a feeling that internal disciplinary mechanisms are sufficient. Beyond that, the fear of negative publicity and coming to a private settlement make up the top three reasons for not pursuing a prosecution. To be frank, there could be more behind this shift. There is the problem of the differing burdens in criminal and civil law. Prosecuting agency may not feel, after consideration of the evidence, that it is simply not provable beyond all reasonable doubt. This would leave the organisation with the option of seeking civil action with its lower burden or using internal dispute resolution mechanisms. Frankly, much will then also depend on whether the funds fraudulently taken are still in some recoverable form or not. In many cases, it may be that the property is dissipated, meaning that there is little or no prospect of recovery anyway. Before I finish this, it's also worth noting that the report makes some commentary on crypto, especially given the crypto discussion earlier in this edition. You may remember the long-winded relation, uh, related discussion over the EU's recent utterances on the point. Well, the fraud report identified that around 8% of fraud cases involve cryptocurrency either for bribery or kick kickbacks, which was about 48% of cases, conversion of misappropriated funds, which is about 43% of cases, and in 35% of cases, proceeds of fraud being laundered using crypto. Conversion, of course, is also a money laundering offence uh, here in the UK under section 327, subsection 1, subsection C of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. This indicates that money laundering and crypto might be the problem which publications this week have highlighted it to be. The report indicates, albeit anecdotally, that though the figure is low at the moment, in the future it will rise, making the case for embracing crypto into national AMLRs, that is, anti-money laundering regimes, all the more imperative. That's it for this relaunched Financial Crime Weekly. See you next week.